Thank you. you may be seated. Uh, we are going to dismiss our preschoolers to Children's Church, our school-age kids to warehouse worship, The story of the Bible is the story of redemption. And I know the Bible is a long book. I don't know how many of you have read through it. Um, there's a lot of details. And sometimes in the midst of the details, we lose the sense of the big picture. But it is simply a book of redemption. And Clay and Starla and Cooper's story is the story of how God can take the hardest circumstances in a fallen world and redeem them for his purpose and for his glory. Amen? Amen. Amen. God is working a plan. Uh, we started this year, the beginning of the year, to look in the, the Bible from 30,000 feet and to see the stories. And you know, like Clay and Starla tell their story, a lot of the Bible is just the stories of how God worked. Um, there's a lot of characters in the Bible. I don't have time to relate all of that. A lot of movement, things that happen. But as we find ourselves in December of this year, uh, we are approaching the end of the story. In fact, uh, we have reached the place, looking at the big themes and characters of the Bible, that there's one character left. And that's going to be John. We only have one character left. I don't know how many we've covered. There's been a bunch. And there was one big idea for John. If we talked about Paul, we talked about his one big idea was salvation by grace through faith. If we talked about Peter, we would talk about living out your, your Christian faith. If we come to John, there was one thing, there was one big idea for John, and it was love. And I think there, there has to be some significance to that. That when we come to the final character, and his one big idea. It was about love. Now, there's a reason that uh, we come to John at the end and love. Hey, I think Stephen, are you? I think this my, my this microphone's on. Um, 
It is John that writes, well, four of the last five books of the New Testament. So he's, and we covered Jude this morning in our life groups, but John is really that sort of the last author. He's the one who's writing the final books, and he's talking about love. But I want you to understand that it didn't start that way for John. Uh, I, I don't know what your impression is of John. Uh, but what we pick up from the gospel is that John is a teenager when he, is, he encounters Jesus. He is a rugged fisherman. And when we read the stories about him, he is intolerant, he is narrow-minded, and he has a temper. Okay, doesn't exactly, you don't associate those traits with love. The stories that are told about John is there's one they're passing through Samaria, and the Samaritans won't let Jesus pass through. And John says to Jesus, do you want us, like Elijah, to pray fire come down from heaven and burn up these bunch of heathens? Not a whole lot of love in that statement. There was another time that there were some people that were casting out demons in Jesus' name but were not a part of their group. And John told Jesus, he said, man, we encountered these people that were casting out demons in your name, but they're not a part of us. We told them to stop it. Yeah. The other time, one gospel records his mother, and then the other, James and John, they come to him in great humility, and they said, Lord, when you come in your kingdom, we were just wanting to ask, could one of us sit at your right hand and one at our, your left? It'd be a really good arrangement for us. We'd love the, the position of prominence and the glory of all of that. Hmm. You don't get this picture of someone of love. In fact, Jesus' nickname for John and his brother James, he called them the sons of thunder. I'm talking about these were rugged, rough fishermen out of the working class. But there's something that happens. And it happens in the encounter that John has with Jesus. And it's not just that he encounters Jesus. It's not just that he is one of the twelve. It is that Jesus drew John in to be a part of his inner circle. And you could make a contention that John was closer to Jesus than any of the other disciples, including Peter. He's there on the Mount of Transfiguration. At the Last Supper, do you know who is sitting in the seat of honor to the right hand of Jesus? It was John. It was John that Jesus, and along with Peter and James, that he called when they went to the garden that night for Jesus to pray, that he called them to come closer to be with him. It was John that was at the trial of Jesus watching. 
It was only John that was at the cross when Jesus died. And it was John, along with Peter, that we know from the scripture went to the empty tomb to verify that Jesus had been raised from the dead. There is something that happens in John's life and his time with Jesus. And we get a glimpse into it when we read his gospel and John does not use his name, but he describes himself throughout the gospel of John, not by John, but by the phrase, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Um, I understand that we can read the stories of Jesus' life in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we can get an idea of the things that Jesus said, the things that Jesus did. I would contend today there is something at a different level, though, for John in his experience with Jesus. He knew Jesus personally. He knew Jesus intimately. And the thing that he took from that personal relationship with Jesus through all of this was his one big idea, love. I would say it is something of a qualitative level that cannot be expressed by words on a page. It marked John's life. He knew that Jesus loved him, and it transformed his life. And I think the lesson we draw from John's life is that love transforms people. Love transforms people. And John knew of a God who loved him because Jesus walked with him. And the one thing that dominated his personal time with Jesus was that Jesus loved me. And we're going to flesh that out today. Historically, uh, from that time, uh, the gospel goes out through Peter, Paul, Shirley, John. Um, eventually, the Roman Empire begins to persecute Christians. We know that the Romans in 70 AD, they came and uh, they destroyed Jerusalem because of the Jewish rebellion. And I understand the Christians are distinct from the Jews. But I'm saying the Romans came through and destroyed Jerusalem. They, they before that time, began to persecute and kill Christians. And what we know historically is that John ends up in Ephesus. Now remember, John has started as a teenager with Jesus, and the decades have rolled on. And now John is an apostle in the church or the churches in Ephesus and around Ephesus. As the decades roll on, you got to get this, all of the other apostles have died 
and probably all been martyred for the faith. There's only one of the originals that's left, and it's the old man, John. Brother Ted, he was old. He was in his 80s, Ted. You remember being in your 80s? Yeah. <laughs> old man John in Ephesus. And because of his prominence, at one point, they, the officials arrest old man John. And they, uh, they take him to an island off the coast. Um, Dennis, you've been to Ephesus. Have, I forgot, have you been to Patmos? We ought to go someday, okay? Not this week. I can't do it this week, but someday. They send the old man John to a prison on Patmos. But he survives that. And eventually he's released, and he goes back to Ephesus. And the early church fathers record these stories. It's not in the scripture, but the early church fathers said that when John was an old man in his 80s, and this is in the 90s uh, AD, not the 1990s, the 90s, the original 90s, John was so feeble, they had to carry him to church. But they would carry the old man to church. And the early church fathers recorded that when his voice was so weak and he couldn't say much at all, there was one thing he always said. And this was it. Little children love one another. Little children love one another. And it's such an amazing story for me to think about John. And uh, that 60, maybe 70 years after his three years with Jesus, there was something that was still dominant in his heart that he could never get past it. And it was about love. And here, here's what it was. He had experienced the love of Jesus. And it's not just, I don't mean that just in the past tense. He had experienced it, yes, in a, a very intimate, personal way in those three years with Jesus. But that love in his heart, that experience and a continuing relationship, that love abided in his heart for those six or seven decades after that. In fact, it so filled his heart that the overflow of his heart to other people was about love. And that's the story of John and what Jesus did for him, he, he experienced Jesus' love, he lived in that love, and love was the overflow of his life, so that anytime he talked, now think about this, there were a lot of hard things that John went through, but love dominated. He never got past it. 
the testimony of John's life is love transforms people. I want to share just one verse of scripture this morning. Uh, and in fact, I just want to share the first part of it. It's in 1 John 3, 1. So y'all know I'm just taking some chunks of scripture. I don't know if you call it sections of scripture, I'll say. They're not chunks of scripture. But we're in these general epistles in which we're challenged to live out our faith. So this starts in Hebrews, James, uh, first and second, Peter, first, second, and third, John, Jude. Uh, the general epistles, the general letters after Paul's writings. Live out your Christian faith. And there's a number of things that John says, even in 1 John. But the one dominant thing is love. And if I just had to take one little half verse, it would be 1 John 3, 1. And John says this, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God. Now, the thing that strikes me about that verse is that had to be written while John's in his 80s. And there's the, there is the word of exclamation to start that, behold. Behold, yes, means to look at, but to me, it, there is a sense of that word. We look at it in amazement. <gasps> behold, we look at it in awe. And the thing that strikes me is John, six or seven decades after his encounter with Jesus, was still in awe. He was still amazed. He was still motivated. The one thing that dominated was the manner of love that God had loved him with, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. John never got over that love that he experienced and continued to experience in Jesus. He says, what manner of love? I don't know. Maybe you have a different translation there. Uh, it has the sense of, behold, look at how God, the kind of love that God has showed us. And man, I think John could fill in so many blanks by that, the manner of love, the manner, how God has loved us. And there's a distinction between God's love and the world's love. And John had experienced, how did John know love? Through Jesus, who came in the flesh. How do we know God? John said, I walked with his son, God himself, Jesus. And the one thing that I got from him more than anything else, yes, he got truth from him, but he got love. And so... Uh, I think John in his brain, when he says what manner of love, he's thinking about God's kind of love. And there's a couple components to God's love, and one of it is that God's love is limitless, 
But I think the word that I want you to kind of fixate on for just a few minutes is that God's love is selfless. I, I don't know even when I say the word love what, what conjures up in your brain. But I think the one thing that captures what God's kind of love is that word selfless. So God's kind of love is a love that gives, that is concerned about the other person's needs. You can read later in 1 John, and he's going to talk about let us not love in tongue or word, but in deed and in truth. Maybe 3.18, somewhere along in there. Here it is. You've got to get this. True love is when I give myself to meet the needs of another person without needing anything in return. Now, that's God's kind of love. Now, that's not necessarily the world's kind of love because there's, in the world's love, there's kind of a give and take. You meet my needs, I can meet some of your needs back and forth. I love this concept that we learn in uh, Gary Chapman's book, The Five Love Languages. I encourage you to read it. It's in my top ten of books. Uh, but he talks about having a love tank and that our love is, uh, you know, if our, if our love tank is low, we don't have any resources to love. But if our love tank is full, then we have resources to love. We're going to come back to that thought. Uh, but the thought is that God's kind of love is a love that gives and doesn't need anything in return. And what John, that's what he experienced in Jesus. And ultimately he would say, and this is in 1 John three sixteen, how do we know love? Because God and his son laid down his life for us. He gave and he didn't need anything from us. The ultimate expression, love is practical. It, it, it lives to meet the needs of another person. Now, here's the problem. Well, this is the mainest problem in my marriage. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Is, well, really the main problem that Amy has is she's married to a flawed individual. Amen? Some of y'all never say Amen? Amen? Why are you saying amen when I'm, I'm down in myself, Brother Kevin? What? No, I just, I, I threw you under the bus there. I set you up for that one. Well, some days I'm better than others. But I'm not ultimately what I need to be. The problem with my wife's marriage is she's married to a flawed individual that loves her uh, as best he can. But it's ultimately not the best. And, and here's the problem with our world, because if I had to uh, contrast this with the world, you know that sin in our world is basically being selfish. Sin is when I say, I want to do my thing. And that's the problem with my marriage and your marriage. So don't, don't yeah, don't be outing me. If, no, you right there with me. Don't, don't be putting on no fr holy, holy-fied front there. No, I know. I haven't been to your house, but I probably know how the way you live. Um, but, but the problem is the sin nature, and that's why we live in a broken world. And this is why our world is so broken, is because 
I can treat you well if you will treat me well. But once you start treating me poorly, then I'm going to turn around and I'm going to treat you poorly. Because you're not filling my love tank, well, I'm sure not going to use my reserves to fill your love tank. Are you crazy? And you see, it becomes this downward spiral or cycle. And I, look around our world. It's, where we, it's how we live. It's, we live in a broken world. But here's the amazing thing. In the midst of that selfish world, God injects his love. God is the source of love. In the person of Jesus Christ, he injected love into our world so that ultimately you or my wife or my kids don't have to fill my love tank. There is another source, and it is God. And I would contend today, John tapped in to the original source of love and that's when man I'm thinking he's lonely on the island of Patmos listen I think John was probably he was an apostle in a messed up church because later in the book of Revelation when Jesus gives a summary or he talks to the seven churches of Asia Minor we're getting there when he, you remember when he came to Ephesus this is where John was the pastor, the elder, whatever you want to call him. Jesus says to the church at Ephesus, the one thing I have against you is that you have left your love that you had at first. I have a feeling John, is he's not loved by that church. <laughs> They've left their first love. He's isolated on, on the island of Patmos as an old man. I'm saying, how can you still love? Because there was a source of love that had not been cut off in his relationships, in his circumstances in life. And it was a divine source of love that he tapped into and he continued to live. And here's the thing. Oh, i got to save that for later. It is God who injects his love into a selfish world. It is our only hope. God is the source of love. And it is through that love that we find our identity and worth so that in 1 John 3, 1, he says, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God. Father, children. John does not say, Behold what manner of love God has bestowed upon us that we should be the creations of God. No, it's much more personal than that. God is Father. He is a figure that loves us. It's a relational connection that we have with him. And because he is our Father, we are his children, whom he loves and he gives, and he is provider, he is protector, he is all. He is a God who loves us continuously, limitlessly. Because everybody else in my life and in your life is limited in their love. There's only one source that it's limitless. Because God is perfect in all his attributes, right? If, it's not that just God knows a lot. God knows everything. It's not that God is somewhere. It's that God is everywhere. It's not that God is powerful. He is all-powerful. If that is true for all of his attributes, 
it is true for love, we never get to the bottom of the reservoir of God's love to say, well, we just ran out. It's like, okay, well, you've kind of reached your end there. No, God's love is limitless and it's selfless. It continues to provide for that need. And what he provides more than anything else is a sense of identity and worth. Do you realize that my my sense of self-worth and self-identity is based on the value that God places on my life? God values me. That's what his love means. God says I'm important. Now, my mama told me I was important, but mamas say those kind of things, don't they? There may be people in your life that value you and treat you and love you, and that's great, and that's part of this. But ultimately, they are flawed individuals, just like your pastor. And there's going to have to be another source and that is a divine source that is limitless. And it is through that that we have identity and worth. Hmm. You know this. When people are raised without that, not even just the God component, but if children are not valued, if children are not loved, they are handicapped in life because there is not love in their reservoir and they end up in relationships marriage or whatever and they do not possess the ability to love because there's nothing in there because they were not loved they're handicapped for life and obviously the sermon could relate to family and marriages and all of that and you can apply it in all those ways ultimately the story of redemption tells us that there is a limitless selfless source of love and an eternal God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And if we will allow him, he will pour his life, his love into us. And ultimately what happens What God's design is, is that we would so allow his love to be poured into our hearts that he would continue to pour it. I, I really, I wish I could have done this, you know, with a glass and you're pouring water into it and then it gets full. And what happens when you keep pouring? Well, it just rolls out the sides. It's, it's overflowing. reality is is that that's what God's love is supposed to look like in our our lives is that we continue to allow him to pour out and then there is there is excess that splashes all around us <laughs> to those that we encounter John never got over it because Jesus God kept pouring his love into him and even though he's going to Patmos and he's persecuted and he's an old man and they're carrying him to church he just keeps saying, little children, love one another. Tap into the source of the limitless, selfless reservoir of love, which is God, and allow it to overflow in your life. Time out before I conclude. 
You and I have a choice to do that. What I'm saying to you is the same connection that John had with God, you have. Now, I understand he spent three years with Jesus, but that's been about six or seven decades ago when he writes these words. Okay? That's in the distant past. That same God doesn't just love John. He loves you and me. And if you will fix your mind on that reality, that spiritual dynamic, if you will allow God, he will pour his love into your life. But the problem is we look at other things. We look at our circumstances. We look at how other people love us. And we, we dictate our level of our love tank on that. And sometimes it's better than others. No, you can allow him. You have to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And then it has to be a daily, if not a moment-by-moment moment reality to say, no, but God loves me. doesn't matter what's going on at work. doesn't matter what's going on at home, what's going on at school. No, the eternal God who sits on the throne of eternity, who is the same yesterday, today, to ever. When we take his word to say from we take it from the man who was as close to Jesus as anyone else that never got over it. And neither should we. And then what we do is we take it from there. It's the overflow of our lives. And we take the gospel to the end of the world. Because we're, we're approaching the end of the story. And the book is about to close, but there's going to be nine, at least 1,900 years more of history and what is the truth? We take the gospel out, and John would say this, yes, we take it out in truth, because there is a truth of the gospel that it was Jesus Christ who died for our sins, who is the only way of salvation, that it's only through faith in him that we can have a right relationship with God. So we go, we, we are armed as we take the gospel into the world with truth, but Christians are also armed with love. It will be the one thing that, along with the truth of the gospel, that doesn't make sense to the world to say, wait a second, how is it that you can love and love and give and give, but I don't see a lot going in. How is it that there's an overflow to your life? You know what John would say? Oh, why don't y'all stand up? You'll think I'm finished. Yeah. You need to stretch your legs. Music team's coming. Do you know what John said? He's the disciple that said, John 13, I think it's 34. The words of Jesus in the upper room. Jesus said a new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you so love one another as I have loved you then he said by this will all know that you are my disciples that you have love for one another truth and love and the truth of the gospel transforms people, but love.
transforms people. Amen. Amen. Let me pray. Father, today we thank you for this time and we give you this time. And uh, Father, we pray more than anything that you would simply pour your love into our hearts, that it would overflow into our world. Father, I would pray for anyone here today who needs to step across the line of faith and trust you as their Lord and Savior, that they would know today that you received them, that your son died for them, that you love them and you welcome them. And so, Father, we pray that you would draw us to yourself and we would live in that love day by day. And we pray this in Jesus' name.